0: Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Jesus replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Thank you very much, Faith. And now I invite Andy, Andy Taylor to come and bring us God's message.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Um, Please keep that passage open for us this morning. And let me add my welcome to Andrew and Hazel. It's good to see you this morning. Some visitors as well here today. It's good to have you. Um, There are many people away because it's half term as well, so lots of empty seats, but it's good to have you here. We've been going through numbers over the last few weeks, but this morning we're having a pause from counting and we are going to return back to. The mini-series we did just before, just after Easter. Raise this a bit. And look at Acts chapter 2. And in another sense, this is also just a one-off sermon, looking at Peter's sermon he gives in this passage. So before we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this chance, this opportunity this morning to gather together to worship you. We thank you for our time when we have heard your word from, from the Bible. We responded to who you are and what you've done for us in song and prayer. And oh Lord, as we focus now in on this passage in Acts, we thank you for it. We thank you for all that happened on that day all that Peter proclaims to the crowd. We thank you for the many thousands who gave their life their life, to Jesus that day. We thank you for the many millions since who have given their lives to Jesus, all because of who he is and what he has done for us. So please help us, remind us this morning, encourage us, inspire us. And Lord, may we also repent if we have not yet done so today. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. If you are somebody this morning who would call themselves a Christian, then can I ask you a question? Why? Why are you a Christian? Has anybody asked you that? Why are you a Christian? Maybe they've asked you because they're generally interested. They've seen your life, they've seen the things you do, the things you don't do. They've heard your words as you try to share your faith with them in work or outside of work. They see that you are committed to this faith. You're willing to stand up for Jesus, perhaps when most other people around you don't. They noticed a genuine difference about you and they're interested to know why. Maybe someone's asked you that question, not out of interest, but out of disrespect, wanting to mock you. Really, why? Why do you believe in Jesus? Do you think it's true? Do you think it really happened in the face of all this modern skepticism? How do you answer a question like that? Maybe you are someone who is perfectly able to articulate the gospel in great words, explaining the truths of what Jesus has done. Maybe you can give a real true personal testimony of the life changed because of Jesus. Maybe you're not so sure. You've grown up in a Christian home and you've known these things your whole life, but you're not quite sure what you believe. Well, You're not quite sure how you would articulate it to your friends. Or maybe you, you are somebody who does that have genuine doubts if you are a Christian? Just life circumstances cause you to wonder and to question yourself. Why am I a Christian? Personal circumstances or the alternative to following Jesus seems so attractive and so we wonder, yeah, good question. Why do I believe? Well, it's my prayer this morning for those of you who say that you are Christians that as we look at this sermon from Peter, Peter, that we'll be reminded of the basic core truths of what the gospel is, of what it is we believe, that we'd be encouraged to hold on to them as truth, and that we'd also be emboldened to answer the question when asked why we believe. But maybe this morning you're somebody who wouldn't be a Christian, and by that I mean you're, not, you're somebody who hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins through his death and resurrection. Then I ask you a slightly different question. And that question is, why not? Why aren't you a Christian? What is it that makes you say no thanks? Or what is it that holds you back? You're not quite sure just yet. Maybe it's that you don't know much about the Christian faith. And you're still learning. You're still asking questions. Maybe you do know facts about Christianity, but actually they may be wrong because your knowledge has come from those who aren't Christians themselves. Again, maybe there are genuine doubts. Can we trust these things that happened such a long time ago? Is the Bible really reliable? Well, again, as we look at this passage, it's my prayer that that you will understand more about the Christian faith but also that you would heed the warning that Peter gives here and that you would take up the offer that Jesus gives of life. So why are you, why aren't you a Christian? That's our question. And Peter is asked a question here. He's not asked why is he a Christian, but he is asked why are you behaving like this? What is going on? People have seen what's just happened. The Holy Spirit has come and they're, they're Speaking about God in all these different languages, languages that they don't know. This is very strange, very weird, and so people don't want to know what's going on. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at that passage, the beginning of Acts chapter 2, where we looked at the new kingdom of Jesus, thinking about the basics of what it means to be a church, thinking about the mission that we have as a church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And last time we read of the Holy Spirit, the one who was promised by Jesus to come. He came, he filled all the believers in that room, and they spoke boldly the word of God. Now we've got to verse 14, and Peter stands up before the crowd. It's probably the case that they are now in the temple courts or somewhere near there where there's a big open space. There are obviously many, many people gathered who've heard this noise and are wondering what's going on. And then verse 14, he speaks, he gets their attention, and he says these words. If you read them with me. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel. Do you see the contrast? They're not drunk. They're fulfilling prophecy. This is no stag do that's gone on all night. This is God stepping into history and acting decisively to fulfill promises. And Peter goes on to quote that passage from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. He says that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit and all of God's people will be involved in speaking the word and prophesying. Signs and wonders will be performed before this great day of the Lord that Joel speaks about. Now, back in Joel, in the Old Testament, he's speaking to the Jews back then, hundreds of years before, and five times he uses this phrase, the day of the Lord, or the great day of the Lord." And he's calling the people back to him, back to repentance, to believe in him again. And so this great day of the Lord seems to be the context. And that day we know it is the day when Jesus will return. When he will come, this world will be ended as it is. But Peter in his sermon here says that these last days, Joel speaks about, are now these days. So you can imagine all those who are listening to him speak, their ears are up and they're listening to what he's saying and they're, are you sure? And What do you mean? What's going to happen next if these are the last days? Many of them will know their Old Testament prophecy. They'll know what's supposed to happen. But do you notice that from verse 22, Peter shifts abruptly and he kind of changes what he's saying. He moves from talking about the events of that day And he says that actually, if you want to understand what's going on here, then you need to hear about what's happened the last three years. Because all of this that you're witnessing is about Jesus. And so if we want to know why we are a Christian, if we want to know why we should be a Christian, then this sermon, Luke's summary of Peter's sermon, gives us a a brilliant overview of the essential truths and of the correct response that's required. And so let's look at what he says. Firstly, this man, this man Jesus, the man crucified for our sin. Look down at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So Peter's saying all this is about Jesus. He says you know him, you've seen him, you heard him, you saw him crucified, you may have seen the many miracles he performed as he healed the sick, as he delivered those who were demon-possessed, as he fed multitudes, as he even raised Lazarus from the dead. You saw it or you heard about it, but yet you refused to believe in this man. Peter says here that all these miracles were proof that he was from God. Now, anybody can talk the big talk, but can they walk the walk, as they say? And boxers are well known for this, aren't they? You've seen it on TV as they are interviewed before the boxing match. They're giving it all this, aren't they? They say, I'm going to beat you up and defeat you in round one or whatever it is. They can talk the talk, but it's only when they get into the ring that we can see whether they can walk the walk and actually do what they promised to do. In our evening services, we are working our way through John's gospel and focusing in on the seven specific signs that he records for us, seven miracles of many that he gives not just as random acts but as signs pointing to who Jesus is, signs that show us something of his identity, of his power, of his mission. As they each have a a real key point linked with the Old Testament that shows us that this man is from God Peter tells his hearers all this is about Jesus and you know and yet this Jesus just 50 days before or so he was handed over to you and you with the help of wicked men put him to death nailing him to the cross Peter doesn't hold his punches. (laughs) Maybe at this point, people started to wander off, you know, accusing me of his death. Others probably were shocked as they hear this. What does it mean? Yes, we know he died, but is he from God? What does that mean? But notice verse 23, I missed out a crucial clause I missed out that all this you handed him over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Yes, you crucified him, but his death was no accident. It was part of God's plan. He knew how it would happen, and he allowed it to happen to fulfill his purposes. This man had to die. It's not plan B. It's not a mistake. God knew and planned it before the creation of the world. God knew that if he was going to create a world where he would give human beings choice to love him or not, then he knew that that would mean they would choose to reject him. And that would mean that they would be spiritually dead and separated from him. And that would mean the only way he could save people would be through sending his son. Sending the man, the God-man, to come and deal with human sin and rebellion. And so God's deliberate plan was to have Jesus killed to pay the price for sin. And this is predicted on page five of your Bibles. You can read it in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve, one of your descendants, will come and he will deal with God's enemy. Now, Peter doesn't give any in-depth exegesis about the atonement or justification or any of these great theological themes. He simply tells us that The death of Jesus is part of God's saving action for his people. And so we can see that Jesus, yes, he was killed by other people on that day. But Jesus died because of us too. He died because of our sin. Because of our rebellion and our disobedience. He died for you. And he died for me. Say, so we have this man Jesus died, there was no doubt of that. But then Peter goes on and he proclaims to the crowd that this Jesus rose from the dead, that he's the King, the Messiah, risen to eternal life. Let's follow on, verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep. A hold of him. Now, people in the crowd would have heard rumors that this may have happened. They would know perhaps that this body was missing and people couldn't find it or produce it and that he'd come back to life. And now Peter is telling all these other people that, hey, this is true. He really has come back to life. And I think he tries to, well, he does prove his point in two ways. Firstly, he talks about the resurrection being fulfillment of prophecy. And then secondly, he talks about the resurrection being verified by eyewitnesses. And I think for us as Christians, this is our encouragement this morning. The fulfillment of prophecy and the eyewitness accounts. Now, why does Peter decide to argue in this way? Well, he's talking to a predominantly Jewish crowd. He calls them fellow Israelites, fellow Jews. And so the Jews, well, they know their Old Testament. They know their prophecy. They also loved their heroes. And one of their heroes was King David, the great King David, the greatest king of Israel. But he was also a bit of a prophet. King David was given a promise, promises about the promised king that was to come. We know that David wrote many psalms, and here he quotes one of those psalms. He quotes Psalm 16. And in the context of Psalm 16, David is talking about His love and his devotion and his trust in Yahweh, in the God of Israel. That he is the only God who brings peace and security and and hope to my life. And so he has these words written for us here, verse 25. Speaking about God, he says, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead you will not let your holy one see decay you have made known to me the path of life you will fill me with joy in your presence david he was saying that that god will not abandon him to the realm of the dead and that he will not see decay Is David talking about himself, or is he talking about someone else? Well, if he is talking about himself, then then sadly he's mistaken. Because David is dead. He died. Everybody knew this. Peter tells us that we can see his tomb, and you can. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go and visit King David's tomb. It's a bigger tourist attraction. It's called the Tomb of David. King David is dead. And so he's not talking about himself. But as Peter tells us he is a bit of a prophet, he's speaking about another holy one, his greater son, one who is to come. If you look at Psalm, no, if you look at 2 Samuel 7, sometime later, you see God speaking to David saying that one of your descendants will come and sit on your throne forever. A prophecy that one day there will be a king who will rule and will not die. So David is speaking, as Peter tells us here, about the Messiah and about the resurrection of the Messiah. Messiah simply means promised one, promised king that is to come. And so this morning, this man Jesus, accredited to us by God through his signs and wonders, has confirmed it and proved it through his resurrection. He came back to life. He fulfilled prophecy. But more than that. He was seen. It's not just rumor. There are eyewitnesses. All that was promised. All that these Jews were waiting for. And longing for. Their king to come. Was now here. The disciples. The apostles had seen him. Their lives had been radically changed and transformed. The power of the Spirit had come upon them, and they're now new men, new women. They've got great confidence. Peter's able to teach wonderfully to 3,000-plus people, whereas before, he ran away. They've got great zeal to obey God. They're willing to die, and even in their deaths, they stand firm on their eyewitness account that they saw Jesus alive. This is not just one man's testimony. It's not just twelve men conspiring together. It's not even the hundred and twenty people he met in that room of Pentecost. Because Jesus appeared to five hundred people at one time. This is real. Now, of course, we are not first hand witnesses of Jesus, his resurrection, but we are certainly second hand witnesses reading the first-hand account in God's word. And as Christians, if we believe, then we have received the Holy Spirit too. And he bears witness within us that these things are true. And he gives us confidence to hold on to these, to trust in them no matter what comes our way, no matter what opposition, no matter what doubts or arguments may come before us, we can be confident that these things are true. And that there is an answer to the questions. Why? Because there is an empty tomb. Jesus is alive. Maybe this morning you are someone who has doubts. Do Peter's words, do these events answer your questions? Do you see that sin has been taken away and dealt with? Do you see that in the resurrection there is hope of everlasting life? Not because of us, all because of Him. Well, let's keep going because Peter is not finished yet. This man, Jesus, the Messiah, God's promised King, is also the Lord, God's ruling King. And He is exalted to rule over all. Take a look down. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Peter, in his review of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is now up to date with current events. There are Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. And if you remember last time when we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus in chapter 1, we saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And that is where he is today, 2,000 years later. What is he doing? Is he having a holiday? No, he is sat at the right hand of God, exalted to the highest place. The place where he was before. As the divine son, but now he is the God man, God taken on flesh for all eternity. Jesus, the man, ruling. He's ruling in heaven right now. Can we prove it? Well, Peter brings back his mighty ally, King David, and he quotes from Psalm 110, and we see that in verse 34. And David says, For, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord said to my Lord, who are these lords? Who is speaking? Well, the Jews, they believed that the second Lord was the Messiah, was this one to come who was, has been invited by God, to the throne room. The Messiah wasn't David. We know that he is the greatest son of David. And so Jesus, when standing before Pilate in his public trial, he says this about himself. He says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus is in heaven. He is Lord and he is ruling and he is in the business of bringing all things under his control and under his feet. Bringing all those who believe in him together and dealing with all those who rebel against him in judgment. And so Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36 by saying, therefore, let all of you, let all of Israel know and be assured of this, that God made this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. If you want the gospel in one sentence, this is it. Here, the crowd of all those thousands, hearing Peter proclaim these truths, how do they respond? Well, they say when they people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And 3,000 of them were convicted of sin that day. They knew that they had played a part in crucifying their king. They understood the warning that he is now Lord, and they faced judgment if they did not come to him. But they've also seen that yet Although they've done that, there is hope. The resurrection gives them hope, so they say, what do we do? And Peter said, repent. And that is the call for us this morning, to repent. Repentance means just turning, turning from rejecting Christ to turning to trust in Christ. Changing from living our lives independently from him, serving other gods or serving ourselves, to trusting in him as both Lord and Messiah, our Savior. God's promised king and God's ruling king. And so my question this morning is, do you believe this? Is this true for you in your life? As Christians, it can be easy for us to say, yes, Jesus is my Savior. But it can be sometimes harder to say, Jesus is my Lord. Making him Lord means letting him rule your life, letting him be in control. Even in the difficult times, in the confusing times, even when we cannot see what is going on, we don't understand our circumstances. By making him Lord of our lives, we can trust the one who does see the big picture. And we know that he never fails. And 3,000 people on that day can testify to that And Jesus is Lord now, and he's been adding to his number ever since. Millions of people all across the world have been coming to faith in him. Because the promise was, yes, for them and for their children, but also for all. For all who are far off, even us non-Jews, us here in Oxford, Great Britain. What benefit does believing in Jesus have for me Well, what greater benefit does Peter talk here than forgiveness of sins and the power of God in our lives? So how do we answer that question? Why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? I am a Christian because God made this Jesus whom I crucified because of my sin, both my Lord and my Saviour fulfilled prophecies many many of them the eyewitnesses accounts prove it who else would I want to be lord of my life and that gives me confidence that I can hold on to these truths when I'm faced with questions from the outside I was talking with a policeman for about an hour yesterday about Jesus it was wonderful and I had to defend this question Why am I a Christian? If you're not, why aren't you a Christian? Peter says, repent, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ. This man who lived on earth, God stepping in to human flesh to empathize and sympathize with us, but more than that, to take on our sin as he was crucified there on the cross, suffering and dying in our place, all part of God's plan to save us from judgment to come. Thank you that we can be assured that our sin is dealt with because Jesus rose from the dead, defeating it all. And there is hope of resurrection for us. I thank you that right now Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven and that he is at work bringing many to himself. And we thank you that one day he will return, that he will come and he will judge. Thank you that we do not need to fear judgment because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we thank you and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given to us. And we pray that you will encourage us with these truths, that you will help us to know how to declare them to people that we meet, to proclaim Jesus crucified, risen from the dead, ascended on high. And that those that we proclaim his words to would hear and then they too would be cut to the heart, that they would come to repentance and trusting in Christ. Please encourage us this morning and be blessed and be glorified through your wonderful word. Amen. Let's stand and let's declare the truth, Jesus is Lord, through song. do stay for tea and coffee and then we close in prayer thank you Lord Jesus that you are Lord and that you reign thank you that you are alive risen from the dead thank you for the great confidence that gives us in our life and please may that confidence take us out to the world to live and speak for you for your glory Amen.